Welcome back everyone to another episode of the Desi VC podcast. I'm your host Akash Pat and like every other episode on the show, this week I'll be featuring another great guest from the world of Indian venture capital. Many of you might already be familiar with him or the first fund that he started, which also happens to be one of India's earliest VC funds. But before we go ahead, let me quickly give a shout out to two startups in our Desi Startups of the Week segment. First up, we have Qshala. Qshala is a curiosity platform consisting of live online courses designed to foster life skills and curiosity in children. The curiosity curriculum helps your child develop critical thinking, improve communication skills, and enhance their ability to learn. It's a one-stop shop for all the skills you wish you were taught at school. To learn more, visit qshala.com. That's Q S H A L A dot com. The second startup we have today is called Clergo. With everyone working from home, things have only gotten worse. In addition to spending hours on Slack or Teams and email, we are constantly jumping from one meeting to another. Zoom fatigue is very real. Clergo makes it effortless to start a discussion around a topic, eliminating the need. for ad hoc and unplanned meetings to discuss something specific learn more by visiting clergo.com that's c l e r g o.com the desi vc listeners also get a one year subscription for free so just sign up on the website and shoot an email to team@clergo.com to avail this offer again to reinstate the desi vc podcast does not charge these startups for any advertising or receive a percentage of sales go ahead and check out both these startups they're really really interesting now on to this week's episode on the show is rahul chandra the managing partner at arkham ventures an early stage fund aimed at middle india the 400 million people just below the top of the pyramid rahul was one of the earliest tech vcs in india starting in 1998 as part of the team at Walden International's India Focus Fund. He later moved to Palo Alto in California to invest in the Silicon Valley startups. In 2005, he co-founded Helion Ventures and relocated to India. At Helion, he invested more than 100 million in 15 companies, a list that includes Equitas, Spandana, Shubham Housing, United Lex, Topper, Rail Yatri, Mo Engage and Seclaw. He is also the author of the Moonshot Game: Adventures of an Indian VC, a book that captures his experience of investing in India from 2006 to 2016. A book that I highly recommend everybody check out, and if possible, go ahead purchase it and read it. It gives you a glimpse about Indian VC between these years. This by far has been one of my favorite episodes on the podcast. Therefore, I'm super super stoked about it. So, without further ado. Let's head in and listen to Rahul. Hi Rahul, welcome to the show. We've been meaning to do this for a while now and I'm so glad to have you on. I'm I want to get started uh, right off the bat. I'm curious to understand how the last 8 months have been for you personally or how has it changed you or affected you from a professional and a personal standpoint? still figuring out uh, the um, professional side is 
uh, you know there are some strange things i have done which is investing in companies without formally physically meeting the founders face to face which is like a, a very unique thing for me because i typically had a style of spending a bunch of time with the founders before committing and, and uh, here i am doing a couple of zoom calls and talking to people all on the phone or on zoom and then uh, and actually going ahead and committing so that i i don't know where it's coming from but uh, uh, i think in the new world we are all developing a better sense of doing things remotely including investing and personally of course you know it's the first couple of months were uh, were a bit of a shock to the system but used it well to uh, you know i i tried to get more serious about cooking uh, kept a fairly um, decent regime went for a walk uh, out in the bangalore sun and i would do that a little later in the day bangalore gives you that luxury of actually taking a walk any time of the day because the weather is so awesome so you know i i got to see um you know the basically the outdoors more than i've ever spent time you know being out at 10 <laughs> in the morning and taking a walk was something i'd never done in my life since uh, maybe college uh, so it was a very unique experience to be spending those times of the days when otherwise you would just be cooped up in the office you you um, i really enjoyed that So yeah, trying to continue that as much as I can, Akash. It's fantastic. You're making me feel a little nostalgic about Bangalore now. But uh, <laughs> there are two questions, two two things. Well, I'll tell you something. There is the 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 flip side is that you know there are no, uh, you know the dosa joints are all closed, so I can't go on a weekend and have the best dosa in town because it's not as easy as it was before the lockdown. So you know there's a trade-off. So I can only enjoy the weather and. the birds in the trees and the sky but i can't go out and have coffee or dosas anywhere <laughs> <laughs> given that you're not able to have the dosas and the filter coffees that bangalore is known for i feel a little better that okay i'm not missing bangalore too much anymore <laughs> <laughs> uh speaking of um, you know you changing the way that you've been investing which is trying to get to know entrepreneurs on zoom and on phone calls How, how do you do that now what do, what do you what do you look for like it's so easy when you are face to face with an entrepreneur trying to understand or go and spend a day in their office and try to understand the culture what are things that you look for now when you are on zoom calls and how do you gauge that in terms of the larger context of things right when you look at your investment portfolio maybe 5 or 6 years from now because things are obviously going to change uh, in a mm-hmm. post covid world what are some of the things that you look for right now when you are on zoom and how easy or difficult is it for you to gauge yeah i would say it is sub sub optimal for sure uh, i think you um, uh, have some kind of a artificial deadline on on a call right otherwise when you sitting somebody is actually taking the effort of coming and and you sitting across a table it tends to be a lot more um, free wheeling and a critical component of a pitch is you know chalk the talk so there's a whiteboard people are drawing stuff and explaining it visually and not everything in a pitch can be just uh, done uh, and i've surprisingly seen an absence of people trying to convert that experience you know founders are just sticking with what is very standard just taking through slides or having a conversation uh, but you know people are not doing whiteboard uses on their ipads and explaining okay this is how it's going to fall in place 
So I'm missing that piece where you ex, you know expand your thinking a little bit more visually. Uh, and uh, the others are, you know, of course the, you know, the piece where you're trying to uh, not just talk to the founder, but also go through, you know, their connections. So the reference calls are still reference calls. Uh, when you want to hear about the founder, uh, those were never face to face. So that kind of is getting supplemented now. Uh, you're doing more of that. So you want to hear more about the founder from other people who who've known him than uh, we were doing before. So we are trying to supplement third party view in to get a better sense of the founder. Um, we do not come very early, Akash. So we we are not seed investors. We come once the company is building some kind of momentum and uh, there is uh, uh, execution data. So we um, that way don't rely so much on, hey, what is in my gut? You know, it's still a gut thing. But because we have to look at past execution data, that helps a lot because if we were really early, that would have made this even harder. But because we are post the first institutional round, we come after that. It gives us plenty of uh, uh, you know stuff to chew through uh, on what's the company been doing, how's attraction been, uh, what are the numbers telling us. So you know that's another supplement that we're doing more of than we would have otherwise. It's it's a good practice. So that's probably uh, both of these are going to stick in a post-COVID world. You know, talk more about the founder with other people, and do more obviously of the uh, the number side. Uh, the traction data, just look at it more. Uh, and, um, you know, hopefully we go back to, uh, you know, drawing stuff on the board and understanding the business model uh, with that as well. So, yeah, I think it's um, certainly not optimal though. I mean, it's, it's not something I'm enjoying. Uh, I think we are all missing uh, the face-to-face -face interactions that we so much enjoyed. And it's, it, um, uh, you know, these, this is more for companies we get into more detailed evaluation with, but you know, ninety percent of the time we are spending, uh, you know, just listening to pitches on Zoom, and you know, those are again high energy meetings that we are really missing, because uh, you know that uh, energy that was brought into the room because of the excitement and uh, and talking about a interesting idea that's obviously missing now. Zoom does not replicate that experience. So missing, you know, 90% of the time is actually going in a fairly, you know, 2D format. There is, there's not a much excitement that we are able to sense on Zoom. So missing that part quite a bit. So, so yeah, it's, it's not something we are uh, actually looking forward a lot to getting back. Would you say you've made fewer investments because of how things have turned out to be this year? And would you also say, because of how things have turned out this year, you've also seen a lot more companies from a deal flow perspective? Yeah, it's been easier. It's been very efficient to actually go through companies. So, you know, what we are doing uh, between my partner and I, we are actually just talking to more companies because the, as you can imagine, the productive time has gone up. You can have, uh, uh, in the filtering side, we are engaged more than we would have otherwise, you know, we would have probably spent started spending more time post a filter clearance. But now we we are going first hand talking to the 
founder for the first time and these are two partners talking to one startup pitching right it's it's like uh, that's how much time we have um released because of no travel you know meetings are really efficient they're um obviously time bound like i said on the that's the flip side of it you can do a lot more so it's um, helping us go through a lot of um, uh, you know first time conversations so that that way it's uh, uh, you know adding to just more but on your question on how was our investment pace uh, we found a balance akash so we've invested in four companies since uh, april and it was a mix of folks we knew from before so we already had conversations going on so we closed two of them and then two were totally new so two are with people we have not really uh, met before and two are with people that we were already talking to so i would not say we have slowed i think we have done um uh, quite okay our pace is generally six deals a year um we are currently at at four we may be, may do five this year uh but it's it's been pretty normal so yeah but that was thanks to the two that we were already looking at i, I don't know if we if we would have done four um that we had never met right so uh, that way it's a bit of balance and the two that we invested in again have uh, you know those elements that we talked about which was uh there was a lot of um momentum traction information that we could uh, digest and it supplemented and founders who have had uh, longer experience in fact uh, uh, my partner had met the one of the founders uh, but i invested in the company but there was at least some historical linkage with this uh, one of the two companies also so it's not all bad by the way since you're talking bangalore uh, being in bangalore also gives you that uh, you you're in the heart of you know 90% of all startup action in india Uh, so it as it turns out barring one uh, five of our six companies are all out of bangalore no that's fantastic and it definitely helps to have um, sort of a local connect and i guess if there's some connect between one of the gps um, it's good enough conviction to go ahead and make an investment now going back to the earlier point that you made let's talk about the lps right especially in in this period and i've i've also kind of seen the kind of lps that you've had for this for this fund you have had entrepreneurs who have been investing in in arkham as such how did those conversations play out what is the contrast between institutional lp versus the newer entrepreneurs who are who are lps in the fund what kind of questions and what kind of concerns did they have um, in the earlier parts of the year and where are they right now so um we have uh, yeah you're right we have investments from both and um, again um, i think everybody has adjusted to continue to do business so an investor who's a professional lp also has found ways to uh, and and the interesting thing about institutional lps is that uh, you pretty much you know at least in our case we have met a lot of them in the past you know in my previous fund or in the in the middle of fundraising for arkham we have met them so it's not a new conversation like i was referring to some of the founders we had met in their previous lives or in our previous lives so there is some connection um family offices of entrepreneurs or you know or traditional industry family offices they are actually also making a call 
uh, based on again, like I said, traction. So you know, if we were doing this uh, before our first close, I don't think we would have had too many LP closures happening in the middle of COVID. But here are again people we have not met, but they have now got uh, not a blind pool, but they've got six companies that we've invested in. Um, you know, they know us from from uh, you know just just outside. They've heard about us. Uh, but I think it would have been far different if we had not started investing versus now where we have six investments uh, and we can talk about how those companies are progressing. But a big part of our pitch now is actually what's happening in our portfolio in a COVID world. And why is that portfolio um, you know, either going through a tailwind or you know, there are some challenges. So that context of the portfolio in a COVID world is now a big part of the conversation. So that's happening with both sides. I want to come back to this a um, little later in the, in the episode, but I want to take you back a few years. You know, you've been investing in venture for almost all of your professional life. Tell us about how it all began. And after all these years, what's the motivation for you to keep going at it? Why I'll answer the motivation part. I think the um, I've started to believe a lot in this. Uh, you know, as I you know do more of this, is that uh, you know you have classical musicians in India who actually peak when they're sixty. Yeah, you know, so uh, somebody who's um, um, you know, who's been practicing for 40 years or more, you know, they're actually peaking in their 60s. I was blown away by this fact that uh, the music world, the classical Indian music world in India would actually say, you know, this performer is at his peak. And if you look in, it's, you know, what, what we all know as compounding, right? So you're doing everything so many times that you start building muscle, which... Um, is getting you know nourished by the fact that you're feeding it every day on the same nutrition. So for me, having done it for 20 plus years, I'm beginning to see the value of that now, uh, where you know my ability to get to the right questions faster, better judgment on the founders, uh, being able to predict challenges and issues with invested companies, um, you know, communicate the uh, you know, understanding the thesis better and being able to communicate that all that is, I believe, a factor of, you know, just having done it for a long time. So I'm really enjoying that fact that now I'm uh, almost doing it from, a, um, you know, from a position of strength. I am, you know, of course, learning more about, let's say, millennial founders uh, and businesses that appeal to them. But I can still use my older muscles to you know, do a lot of what I need to do. So I think um, the motivation, uh, you know, I guess the other aspect of that motivation is I've been doing this in an environment which, you know, was very sparse. India in 2006 was starting off with China. And, you know, you actually had LPs say that we have invested in one China fund and one India fund and we'll see what happens. And, you know, the Chinese VCs 
also stumbled around for a few years, but then they had an amazing takeoff. And Indian VCs were still struggling in an ecosystem which was not powering up. You know, it was still a question of do enough people have access? You know, is there enough spending power? What's going on? And meanwhile, the Chinese VCs were like uh, almost an equal or more um, market as compared to the US. So you can imagine how far behind India is compared to China when we started at the same time. So that's been really disappointing. But if you look at uh, what we are seeing now in India, the, um, you know, I've, I was talking to another VC who's been investing for a long time. Um, he ran a business in India, a, a global tech business in India in 2004, five, um, and, you know, been investing since then. And we were both like, Hey, finally, we see it happening. You know, what we've been waiting for, for a decade is finally happening. So if you ask me, what am I expecting from the, you know, the current decade? from 2020 to 2025, you know, the pace of which at which, you know, that compounding is happening across the ecosystem, Akash, the founders are going back and restarting. Uh, so there are second time founders. There are people who worked in startups who, you know, who pick threads and then they go start some things outside. The consumers who are, um, you know, just moving very fast in um, being comfortable with, paying for things and adopting, you know, digital services that is now beginning to look like uh, what we, you know, what we were expecting in 2006. So while, you know, that decade, my 2006 to 2015 investment decade is, you know, has not been too bad. You know, we I've had uh, several exits to IPOs, uh, third one expected from the lot of companies, you know, most of my companies that I invested in, are in their series D rounds. They've they raised a lot of capital. Valuations are in the 100 to 250 million dollar range. So it's not been bad, but it's taken time, right? It's taken a lot of patience, maybe not so much capital. And because there wasn't that much capital. And now in this decade, I think more capital will be invested much faster. But the valuation growth and the business growth is going to be a lot faster than what we saw uh, in that part. So I'm excited about one, number one valuation uh, that we are going to be able to see growing in this market. Two is consumer adoption. And third is, of course, my ability to use, you know, what uh, you know, I feel is now something which has compounded over 20 years. So it's a good place to be right now. I think that's a great point. Going back to the earlier one that you made uh, for younger VCs today, or aspirants wanting to crack into the VC world, it looks very glamorous from the outside. But to hear you say that you're enjoying it more than ever today, 15 years from when you first started, is refreshing and very humbling to, to, to hear from at least my perspective. I'm pretty sure a lot of listeners will also agree with that. Now, when you talk about the kind of evolution that's come about, both on the consumer side, as well as from the entrepreneur ecosystem, where you're seeing second-time founders, a lot of people who have worked in startups in the last decade are going back and trying to f- uh, found companies themselves. That's one hell of a journey, right? The, from when you first started mm-hmm. in 2006 to what you're seeing right now. This might end up sounding like a super long question, but I'm trying to like form this in my head as we speak. Sure. One of the reasons I am doing this podcast is to better understand 
the evolution as well of what um, venture looked like in the early days, especially in India when it started to where it is kind of right now. From that perspective, I'd like to understand more from an LP community perspective. I'd like to think, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a student of venture history to a certain degree, and I would love to hear from your perspective, what did the LP community look like when you were raising money for the first time for Helion back in the mid 2000s? And how do you find them today? What was your pitch like back then? And what was the thesis back then? And today's thesis is, is kind of like out there. People know what Outcome does. You've, you've, you've been on enough number of podcasts and there's enough information out there to people to understand and know what Outcome does. So love for you to talk about what happened back in mid 2000s. And because this was, as you previously mentioned as well, a point where there was, it was the beginning of the startup bubble or maybe in 2006, there was no startup bubble either. So when you were talking to LPs back then, how did you talk to them? What were some of the concerns and how did you raise money then? And how easy or difficult for, was it for you to raise money today, 15 years with, with a good track record and a history of exits? Right. So the um, LPs at that time were the early, um, I guess, adventure oriented LPs who were very, uh, very um, strong in the US markets. But in their mandate, what came up was, you know, let's look at emerging markets. And, you know, and uh, India and China both owe their, um, I guess, ignition to these LPs who came in with very long term views. So India had funds before 2005 also. Um, and the LPs were much more short term. They could have been corporates who said one day that, you know, we'll, we'll invest in startups, whatever animal that is. And then there were the endowments in the US who have, you know, a hundred year view on life. And they're looking at China and India on a 25 year view. And, you know, they're doing that with, uh, uh, you know, with almost not all information, no proof. And they're going and, you know, taking their bets on markets. And they're doing it probably because the markets are large and promising. Now, uh, India has gone through a long cycle. It still lacks the firepower of a China liquidity uh, that China's ecosystem has been able to provide these LPs. So if you talk to an LP in the US now, there is a very well-identified uh, allocation to China, because there's been a pattern of VCs returning capital uh, or number of unicorns being, you know, almost as close to the US number of unicorns. Uh, so it makes a lot of sense to do that in China. India has had a period where it's just been like I was sharing my disappointment. It's had a very slow, spotty period, uh, you know, so by and large, um, you have to be a clever fisherman to catch fish in India. Because it's not like you throw a net and something is going to come in or you're going to have a good catch. So it is still, um, unfortunately, that's the takeaway for LPs that show us when India is truly turning and show us when the returns are going to be very meaningful. And these are people who are going to sign bigger checks. So on a broader basis, India is still restricted on the funds that are backed by long-term LPs. But what has been filled as of now is this 
the micro VC segment and the seed fund segment, which has been backed primarily by Indian LPs. Uh, and there is capital available for taking that first check and going forward with it. So there is, you know, there is democratization in the first check, but there is not enough critical mass in the second check. And that's the point where once India delivers on its promise, uh, my sense is that a lot of LPs are going to start, you know, creating India allocation in their thesis rather than as, you know, we, we don't know what's happening there. And I think we, we are seeing proof on the ground. It's just not that visible to a global base of LPs. And again, flip it over, like in the last 15 years, US has been on, on fire, right? In terms of even Facebook had just started in 2005 and probably not even started. And even when they were growing pre-IPO, there was a question on, if you remember Facebook, IPO had, uh, had a drop. Uh, Amazon was still fumbling, you know, 2001 was a bad year for Amazon prices had a stock price had dropped. Right. So it, there was still a lot of uncertainty in, the, in, in that 2006, seven period. And then it happened, uh, financial crisis happened, liquidity went up. Uh, but, you know, the shared economy companies came and, you know, started doing well. And then US tech also, US VCs also diverted a lot of capital to US enterprise. And that became the first, uh, uh, what should I say, things out of the gate in terms of solid revenue, you know, comparable valuations, giving money back to VC firms, to LPs. And, and now what's being, what's following, you know, are other companies which have been funded in the, in the last seven, eight years, which are now going public. Uh, so US has been super attractive. China has been super attractive. So again, compared to that, India looks even paler uh, because there are choices and LPs don't need to make a, you know, a choice to be in India just because they have to. Uh, they have options. So you know, India has to stand as a comparable option where the, you know, the return is not so much of a promise, but you know, we're beginning to see it to be more real. Uh, and, and again, being on the ground, what we are seeing is that the number of Sunicons and companies that are actually doing uh, some phenomenal work, um, you know, there is a rising tide that's happening. So I think we, India should be able to show the early promise uh, and show early returns. And then I think uh, what, what I would expect is that more institutional capital will come in and then uh, there'll be um, a critical mass that gets built in the second check space as well. Was that was that uh, was that uh, confusing, Akash? Should, should I? No, not at all. In fact, I I I, I want to um, extend that point that you made, which is the second check perspective. So, from mm -hmm. is that a is that an apt reflection of the Indian market in comparison to what China has done and what the U the US has done and the pace at which it has grown, which has kind of made LPs uh, and investors and VCs alike kind of probably give India a second chance in terms of saying, okay, you know what, uh, there's a lot that needs to be done infrastructurally um, for the ecosystem to match the pace at which China has kind of grown or even the US as such. So is that a good reflection of the Indian market or are we giving the Indian market um, too much of credit and, and playing the long waiting game? 
I mean, again, I can say from the ground, I'm in Bangalore. So what? Um, and there may be some some bias here also because we want it to happen. Uh, so we probably see it that way, you know. But I'm able to actually, you know, probably see the differences a bit more clearly because I've I've seen that, and I can appreciate what's changing. Um, so uh, the benefit is a personal decision. You know, if people are going to give or believe in India, is is all going to come down to what their own risk appetite is, and it's always a risk appetite. But you know, it's some time before it becomes a no-brainer to be a LP in an Indian VC fund. It's it's not um, happening in the next two three years. But I think the next two three years, as uh, India always gets into this mode of saying, the next two years are looking very promising. Uh, but I'll tell you why it looks promising to me. Uh, and the um, a lot of that has to do with critical mass. Right? The, the startup ecosystem where the uh, you know the founders are, are beginning to combine the capability of building the right products with the right market you know great founder big market right product that combination the number of times i'm beginning to see that now is you know is far far more than what it was before but the reason for that to happen is the ingredients are in place. You know, we are also, I'll, I'll use your platform to talk about uh, a podcast series we are launching and it's called Slingshot. And we are interviewing product managers in India. Um, you know, people who are uh, running products at Swiggy or Dunzo and, and, and we are getting a very good insight on how product thinking is happening in Indian organizations. And, you know, this was not the case even four years back, you know, the kind of maturity uh, and the alignment that the founder and the product head are having between them, uh, the clarity of what needs to be done to grow uh, and that it is not an incentive-driven growth path which happened in 2014-15. Um, you know, I'm beginning to see those things go away. People understand products fundamentally better. Um, the number of people who can contribute to the product development um, and this is happening, by the way, Akash, because of um, a younger PM in a company in India uh, is someone who's, mm, let's say, 25, right? So if you go 10 years back, they actually were 15 uh, when, um, uh, you know, a lot of the early stage startups had come about, internet had become part of the curriculum, entrepreneur schools or startups, you know, coaching had happened in colleges that they were at they came out um, you know understanding startup products using um, you know mobile products fundamentally being a mobile user we have now a generation who's both the consumer and the builder that's grown and learned you know web tech mobile tech and you know is native to the uh, internet so, so we have that ingredient. We have the second ingredient, which is like the lowest cost of broadband in the world. And that is driving, you know, a lot of usage and adoption. We have rural India consuming more bandwidth than urban India, if you, you know, believe it or not. But it's, you know, it's something which is 
beyond uh, again most countries including the us don't have that kind of a mix so there is that second ingredient where bandwidth and you know the the tech adoption at a consumer level is is humongous and the third is that we are a nation which you know is the second largest you know consumer population in the world you can't wish that away you can't deny that we have more consumers in the world than the us has even though the profile is very different so if you combine these three ingredients you have uh, a lot of strength in in the uh, and, and like i said earlier there are uh, you know hundreds of micro vc funds there are thousands of angel investors again these numbers have grown exponentially uh, angel investors must have been in the 50 100 10 years back they are like 7 8000 now and this is an actual count and micro vc funds of course were maybe 5 10 and they are now you know at least 70 80 so you know you're you're actually building this uh, and uh, the furnace is uh, you know you know the the uh, the temperature is going up so the chemical reaction is about to happen so that's my you know that's my takeaway why i see promise uh, from what i'm seeing on the ground is that sentiment also reflected within the two different sets of lps that you have on your table is that reflected between them as well like i can understand from an entrepreneur perspective who's investing into a vc fund as to why the middle india opportunity mm-hmm. kind of makes a lot of sense but do your institutional lps also believe mm-hmm. in the same vision or is it more very similar to what happened in 2006 where investors were like okay india is the opportunity it's an emerging mm-hmm. market let's take a look at them but today is middle india india of the 2006 does that make sense yeah yeah no good question and and um, absolutely i think um, so there are some lps that uh, you know that are at uh, india is promising level so you know absolutely no no denying it and that's a good thing right there is there is promise broadly there is you know there's not just promise in middle india we believe middle india is the most attractive because we have seen it for much longer we are now kind of going to like i was telling earlier we were fishing around for opportunities now we're taking a net to middle india so we expect a lot of fish to happen there and we can finally drop a fishing line and put the net out you know well others will follow us there probably and absolutely and do lps also see that yes you know and i've certainly like to hope so that you know the lps who committed to arkam believe also in the middle india thesis they they see the alignment between uh, this population which is which has been underserved Techno- technology now allows us to go and sell to them and there are very unique things that appeal to them you know they are they are not uh, uh, you know fringe activities Uh, they are things which are core to their consumption uh, and what we are doing and seeing is just creating um, you know a new stack uh, to deliver healthcare to deliver financial services to deliver you know agri produce so it's a full stack development for 400 million almost new consumers because you know they were not part of the consumer list of the traditional companies so uh, we are uh, 
you know, doing this now because, you know, Aadhaar and UPI have been widely adopted, talked about the broadband penetration and the broadband consumption. Uh, and the, uh, the comfort of, you know, just using apps. Uh, Swiggy, I think, is in hundreds of cities and towns now. And people, you know, I'm, I was looking at a, um, uh, at a Shopify equivalent, you know, like a, um, for, for small stores. And I came across this, I spoke to this guy actually in, in a village in Orissa. And he had replicated the Swiggy model by tying up the local restaurants. So, you know, that's the kind of innovation I'm seeing getting, uh, uh, you know, just permeated through the system uh, where people understand, you know, so he actually brought the menus, he created an aggregate menu, he had delivery time. And, and this is a, maybe not a village, but, you know, a, a really small town I've never heard of, but uh, it, it's way down the list and, and people are replicating Swiggy themes over there. So interesting things are happening. That's, that's a very good point that you brought up because I want to understand from a VC perspective about how you're looking at these businesses that are, you know, local solutions for local markets. What is the potential for these solutions to be replicated at scale across India? Because at the end of the day, you as a VC are looking at businesses that can multiply, right? You're not just looking for individual small markets. How are you seeing, like the example that you talked about, this entrepreneur Norisa bringing together local restaurants? Do you see this as a model that can be replicated all across the country, or is it just something that's very local to that particular part of the state as well? Absolutely. No, our uh, you know the reason why we're doing Middle India is for scale, and you know we 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 are actually at that abstraction layer where you know one massive uh, market can be addressed with one solution. Uh, and we're doing that in these four areas where the um, uh, in financial services, healthcare, agri, supply chain, these four areas, we see this, these to be you know, commonly afflicted across most states in India, right? So we are, um, going here because we see scale you know the uh, the common problems that we can address the common purchasing behavior the common uh, gaps in what is available to them the price points at which they want things available to them we're seeing that common across not just um, one or two states but across you know multiple states so that's how we will get scale and uh, all you know all this is uh, um, of course marred by the fact that we are you know we speak so many languages geographically things are so diff, you know so far uh, and how do we solve the physical uh, delivery issues for markets that are far flung those are actually opportunities you know we we are seeing this uh, even from a consumer standpoint they you know no matter what language people speak but their need for consumption of content their need for con you know consumption of uh, you know, healthcare service or, you know, agri information, a farmer in one state versus the other, they may be growing different crops at different times of the year, but they need, uh, you know, to get localized information, but the platform to deliver that will be the same, right? So we are seeing a lot of common themes across. So all this is because we can get to scale. Right now, we've talked about the growth, the opportunity, the potential of middle India. 
what's the biggest misconception about middle india both from an lp perspective and a founder perspective what don't they get that you are seeing from a ground level i think the image that they that it evokes in their mind is this uh, you know really downtrodden you know empty pockets hungry indian uh, who's way down in the in the ability to purchase anything you know we anyways have this question that hey the per capita of india is lower than bangladesh you know chinese consumers are spending like crazy us consumers also have uh you know critical mass when you know for the ones who can spend a lot but the indian consumer to begin with you know uh, the the images can they spend as much and then you take it down to middle india and the image is like uh, you know do they even have any money in their pocket and the reality we have seen akash is that it it is um a market which has a very predictable uh supply of income whether it's a uh, you know it's farming income or you know from their own enterprise it may be a shop they run uh, or a job they do but they have to um, you know they they are also uh, operating not as individuals but as household units so there will be more than one person who earns so the household earns a combination of income so you know the household income then becomes the purchasing power versus per capita so that's one two is that it is not an affordability problem but a liquidity problem so you know this is a population that spends but doesn't you know let's say um take money out of their bank account and spend you know it's not like they have a massive bank balance and then they deplete it when they go and buy but this is where they will earn and spend far more frequently than than other consumers you know for them it is much shorter cycle of of earning and spending versus you know uh, the the velocity of money is far more uh, whereas the upper class indians would just have stagnant bank accounts they can look at 3 or 5 year they can think of retirement here it is a much more you know we have to spend we have needs and uh, we have our visibility to to income is is not that long so they have shorter time windows to see where income is coming from so that's one one difference and the um, other big one of course is that their um, ticket sizes are smaller so their purchasing quantity uh, will always be far smaller uh, but on the flip side they will do it far more you know and that's a derivative of the fact that they spend earn earn and spend so they do it far more frequently than uh, you know we would do in top tier india where you know the top tier indian consumer would stock more by larger order quantities here it is much smaller so the business model has to be able to cater to that you know you cannot have uh, large ticket transactions um and fewer onboardings you know you just multiply that by a thousand and you get a business model here which means you know if that was a thousand transactions at 1000 rupees here it is a million transactions of 1 uh, rupee right so that's you know, uh, kind of what is the fundamental difference 
so yeah so these are uh, unique aspects of this but you know this is the fastest growing consumer population fastest growing in uh, in income levels and they are um, uh, you know that they are also um, if if top tier india is 40 million these guys are 400 million so they are far more in number and uh, you know they just have been underserved for so long so so that's that's what's attractive about it that's fantastic you spoke about the spending power of middle india and the potential it holds for startups in the consumer sector the huge opportunities for businesses to serve india's 1 billion plus consumers through innovative inclusive in, and inclusive business models now supported by a favorable policy environment by the government these opportunities have the potential to expose indian consumers to a world of new categories and products right but on the flip side if you look at just what's happened this year the shrinking employment in october the lingering targeted um, containment measures likely will continue to weigh on the household spending so how do you see the macroeconomic trends affecting the growth opportunity of middle india and how much of that would you say also rests in the hands of the government going forward so we are expecting like every other part of the world the post covid recovery is going to be driven by uh, you know over flooding of liquidity every country needs to come out of the demand side issue by flooding markets with liquidity we are already beginning to see that uh, so the liquidity that we are expecting will drive demand at uh, this middle india level that we talked about akash because the uh, government is going to make special uh, provisions to make sure that the purchasing power of of this middle india and of course the bottom is what is continued because that's what leads to uh, you know more human hardships which the government would want to avoid and the good thing is that the at least for the bottom there is the um rails that have been built where you know unlike the more dispersed systems of uh, you know of giving jobs and then paying manually now there are you know far more aadhar connected bank accounts uh, so about 350 million aadhar connected bank accounts which can be credited directly so now we are going to see the benefit of the pain that has happened in the in the past where you know digital currency Uh, the demon effect you know is going to be better because now everyone's used to just accepting and paying in uh, digital currency that's one uh, and the uh, you know the other part is uh, the agri economy in this year has been super strong so if you look at rural markets where about 50% of india is involved with there um family incomes this year is going to be bigger better than the year before and the outcome output has been uh, better the kharif crop has been benefiting from the rains i think there was a 10% excess rain this year so all in all the rural economy which is linked to agri at least which is the bulk of it has done well this year so uh, contrary to what one would expect in a covid year uh you know demand will be managed through some de- demand side incentives and also through the agri economy the rural economy but as far as a vc is concerned you know we are obviously seeing the uh construction of 
stacks that will support this economy. And that's almost like we are building a house first before somebody can come and live in it. So people are, for example, banks are paying today for uh, a, you know, a KYC company to come and build the digital KYC system for them. And the volumes are so high, they're just beginning to start using it. COVID has created incentives for them to adopt more digitized KYC methods than they were using before, where people would walk into a branch, give us you know, a bunch of papers, which will then be circulated to the back office of the bank. People will show up at the back office and they will just do a business process outsourcing to validate the KYC. Now it's being done from three weeks down to four hours through just pure digitization. So these are blocks that are getting put in place now in this COVID year, because overall there has been a push towards more digitization both at the system level where you know banks, telecom companies, uh, government, they're all relying more on digital submissions and digital distribution. So companies that are putting these uh, pieces in place, they are seeing demand even in this COVID year because it's a prep time. No, I, I completely agree with that. And realizing India's promise will require you know, coordination and um, coming together of national, state, local stakeholders to adopt new approaches to governance and provision of services uh, to meet everybody's aspirations. Um, you know, they, they will need new capabilities. The requirements include private sector uh, style procurement and supply chain expertise, deep technical skill sets for planning uh, infrastructure in investments and strong project management capabilities, right? To really ensure that large capital projects finish on time and on a budget. And you really, and you give a great example of how digitalization is, is kind of helping put all of these things in place just from uh, what's happened in the, in the era of COVID. So I am very optimistic about what the government and what role it plays and how local stakeholders can also come together because you need all of these people to come together under one umbrella to really build on this. And, uh, you know, we've been discussing a whole lot about Middle India opportunity on the podcast. I'd like to actually take this one step further and ask if you're paying attention or special attention to the movement towards closing the gender gap in Middle India, you know, be that whether it's digital education or financial in, in terms of uh, inclusion, how much of a focus is that for you personally from a VC perspective? And is that is there an opportunity there? There is an opportunity for sure, uh, because the person behind a phone doesn't have to go and step on the street, take permissions as much as you know they were required. They don't need to be carried or dropped. There is no question of safety. So participation in the digital economy is expected to be a lot more streamlined than in the physical economy because of you know one key concern for women participation is safety and then you know permissions from the, the household heads, et cetera. And that was always the shortcoming. Now, the flip side is, of course, women are more at home. You know, I was reading this, you know, girls in schools are dropping out. There is a big campaign in, that I was watching happening in Pakistan where, you know, they're basically promoting the fact that girls are dropping out of school more than boys. Women are dropping out of workforce. So that is to begin with a challenge. Then we move on to the, uh, you know, to the participation going forward. Now, no other country has a bigger millennial population 
than india has so we're talking about women who are young also right so they're joining the workforce now what uh, um, covid has done you know india has a big outsourcing economy as you know everybody has gone home and they're operating from remote locations so they're they're uh, writing project reports they're analyzing companies they're um, analyzing balance sheets sitting in remotest parts of india where just to move from there and come to a bangalore would be a journey right for somebody to actually go through that whole thing of finding a job in bangalore now the job has moved to their home uh, and if they manage to continue working keeping the paycheck keeping the job then you know then imagine the fact that suddenly employability has actually gone into tier 3 tier 4 uh, and you know there is delivery coming from there so there's this newfound belief that you know the workforce has basically expanded to the smaller towns so that should automatically then bring about now as far as we are concerned we are seeing that in certain sectors like lending for example uh, a lot of our borrowers in in through our uh, investee company which is the largest digital lending platform in the country uh, there is uh, high participation of women borrowers um, so getting credit to and building credit for thin credit file customers that includes women we are pushing for where there is a uh, you know higher access that digital loans are now providing in another instance we have a agri finance company where credit scores actually look at girl education or building uh, you know has the uh, borrower built uh, let's say um, a restroom inside the house those are positive credit points because that indicates that that person is uh, is actually trying to build safety security as an orientation towards um security and that makes him a better credit borrower so indirectly these uh, you know models are leading to behavior which will lead to you know better conditions uh, better uh, you know just encouragement at home for for the girl child gets education and is safer so that's the indirect uh, impact of some of these companies that we are investors in that's fantastic as a gate to hear and when we uh, can like educate women and girls especially in places uh, in rural india it can like also has a positive impact on not just the families but also the society as as a whole in, in general now mm-hmm. uh, i think that creates a good segue into my next question where i want to talk a little more about the manufacturing sector in india uh, given how most of it also lies in uh, middle india and tier 2 tier 3 markets this has been a really fascinating sector to watch from the outside for me personally and although india's manufacturing sector which again employs a lot of women as lag behind china's there substantial opportunities to invest in value creating businesses and to create jobs and india's appeal to potential investors will be far more than just the low cost labor so manufacturing will be building competitive businesses to tap into the large and growing local market what factors in your opinion you will really need to come together to ramp this up in the middle india sector 
and how do you see this playing out in the next 5 to say 10 years so this obviously is the state that uh, a lot of uh, groups are actually aiming towards right because if this happens then the core problem of unemployment is solved uh, productivity will be high if uh, you know given that these are younger workers and at least what we are seeing is several uh, interest groups moving in the same direction which is how do you bring more manufacturing jobs into india government incentives uh, state level incentives they're all if you look at it they're all geared towards more manufacturing jobs auto companies are being wooed to set up their plants in states with you know low cost land tax waivers so i think that is a fundamental solution that people are deeply aware of and i think the government policies are geared towards driving that now that rests a lot on the domestic manufacturing companies growing uh, their production and capacity which has factors linked to how they see access to capital how do they see their markets growing and there will be a certain pace of that which is not going to lead necessarily to a lot of the new capacity creation what will lead to a lot of new capacity creation would be the foreign companies coming and creating manufacturing out of here with that promise which you mentioned which is they get access to the indian market so you know the defense sector is you know is putting some early manufacturing on the ground uh, there is um, a lot of car new car companies that are coming into india and uh, for example apple has created uh, you know at least the beginnings of they were not really uh, the the most active phone company in india but now there is there is commitment to actually do manufacturing or assembly in india uh, chinese companies like xiaomi they hire 25000 people 30000 people for phone assembly some parts are built entirely in india like you know like uh, batteries so there is uh, uh, you know that traditional sectors coming in and creating plants and then of course the whole sunrise economy which is you know the government is pushing for ev that whole ecosystem of you know manufacturing charging stations or uh, creating ev vehicles you know fleet after fleet is being incentivized to switch to ev you know both three wheelers for last mile delivery as well as uh, two wheelers for person commute and we are seeing a lot of manufacturing coming around that but you know i would put this akash more around you know the main thrust of government policy so it's something that we are all going to be keeping our fingers crossed and hoping it happens because this is the identified solution already to you know where india's employment problems are going to be solved which is probably the biggest issues we have how much of a say does the vc community have in policies such as atmanirbhar bharat and uh, the others that have come along just during the covid era how much participation do you think is coming from the vc sector or the private sectors in setting forth these policies that can really have a massive impact on the next wave of opportunities in india 
so some some vcs are involved i don't think it's a a, a very active uh, you know contribution at this point uh, is the government reaching out to the tech sector absolutely is the government recognizing startups is the government promoting startups absolutely you know there's a 2 billion dollar fund of fund every ministry has a 100 million dollar fund which is investing directly in and what they're tracking obviously is um, you know are these companies building something for atmanirbhar bharat or you know are they providing employment are they going into smaller towns there is this is all new I mean, this is all last 5 years or so where the government is quite engaged with the the uh, notion that startups can create jobs and so there have been um, many many initiatives that you know all of us are benefiting from where government policies identify at least you know earlier it wasn't even you know a government conversation would not even uh, comprehend the word venture capital or startups it wouldn't matter everyone will have the perception that hey startups are small who will they hire they don't make an impact but with a with a broader um, recognition at all levels as you can imagine there is a recognition for startups so that is pervasive you know pervasive large corporates are setting up incubators they are supporting startups to come in um, at the highest level i've seen these companies that are really old world uh, infrastructure you know uh, focused companies they are creating labs they are creating incubators and all because uh, you know there is a recognition that supporting startups and innovation is the key and i think it's become uh, more widespread because of government recognition if the government had not done it i'm sure you know larger corporate groups would have started pushing that anyways so i think there is uh, at least the outbound from government i don't think there is that much contribution by the venture community at this point on the policies but there are think tanks like niti aayog which take in a lot from people who are involved with the tech world so there is at least that bridge where the ev policy for example uh, is closely aligned with how startups think about ev uh, niti aayog's policy actually puts it out as a government priority so there is uh, you know some coordination happening uh, you know at that level now that's good to hear and now trying to tie all this back together you know we spoke about governance we spoke about the india opportunity middle india opportunity micro and macroeconomic trends now the desi vc you know the investor in india today faces a tough road ahead because the local entrepreneur or the desi entrepreneur or entrepreneurs are surrounding themselves with indoor team members um, and have an utterly broken moral code you know we're seeing a good example of this play out with byju and white hat junior and what's happened in recent times now nothing sustainable can be built in the long term when your teams are built this way how do you tackle this how what is your stance maybe not just talk about the byju example we can leave that example out uh but how do you tackle this how how does the vc community look at this from the inside and what can be done going forward in order to build sustainable business models as well as moral businesses going forward <laughs> um see anything that grows 
and grows fast will have um, players with a diverse set of moral values come in because it's an opportunity like a gold rush you couldn't make you know you couldn't uh, make sure that anybody coming in would be a conservationist digging for gold right there's no um, no way you can def- define determine it finally is a system that will find its own balance and it has a lot to do with you know you as uh, a nation you as a person um and you know the the good part of course is that this is uh, uh where these questions are asked this is a space where these questions are asked on you know if we if you're doing something does it really have a positive impact and it needs tremendous motivation for entrepreneurs to keep the course right the if they uh by and large are going to be short sighted and put in systems which are not sustainable then there is you know that much pressure on them to keep the balls in the air and if there is something that goes wrong then it's very hard to pick it up again so i think you know these are extremely rare situations where uh you're rushing through to build value by cutting corners and you're very lucky so you know luck is a low probability event and it kind of sorts the system out by and large uh you know we all believe in the you know in the power of humanity of people actually wanting to make a positive difference in majority and then some people will always be there who will try and rush through things so i think that's the system i'm talking about i don't think anyone can make this um one way or the other i think it will we'll have to wait and see how it plays out uh, the other thing is that reputation uh, is a big deal it's a small world people get to know what you're doing very quickly uh, there is enough chatter and uh, the uh, system sorts itself out so i think that that to me is the only way uh, but can we enforce uh, it's hard to say but akash i totally understand what you're saying where things could go and personally i come from you know uh, vc in the last 20 years and i've you know seen ethics and you know just professionalism be the bedrock of you know this is a very small business very few people are there and mm-hmm. ethics and professionalism really guide behavior you know you almost expect somebody to not behave in a certain way and you know when they do then it kind of gets known and you know you you generally would not want to work with that person again that much power is there with you because the um, i would certainly not want it to go in the direction where you know it's a doggy dog world but you know growth is coming there are far more players now and this is fundamentally a greed industry so you can't be too much of holier than thou in this you know finally everyone wants to make money uh, it is not a not for profit so we'll see i think it's finally moral fiber that uh, you know that will show so fingers crossed but let's see how this plays out
No, I like that. I like that response because it encompasses everything that we're looking at from a VC perspective, both models, ethics, reality, um, you know, return on investment. And that's kind of everything on, that's on top of mind for every investor. So as you said, we'll see how this goes. And I want to quickly head into my last segment, which is a rapid fire, put you on the spot and get some, uh, get to know you a little more personally uh, from who you are as an investor. So um, I'll start out with this question, which is kind of interesting from my perspective. As an investor today, what risks are you willing to take and what are you not set on taking? I'm willing to take a risk on uh, the team and on the capital, which may or may not come. I'm not willing to take a risk on the business model. I'm not willing to take a risk on the product market fit. Very interesting. Uh, especially given that you're coming in slightly later from an early stage, so this kind of makes sense. It works out well, yes. Yeah. So what with an Indian VC would you like to see change in the next five years? I'd like to see a lot more micro VCs, which are oriented towards certain sectors that are truly adding value. So right now we've gone from no capital at the earliest stage to more democratic capital. But it is at this point, just capital. The next phase that I would like it to go into is where People can really help a fintech company uh, or you know, sector orientations and actual uh, value creation at the very early stage. You know, the playbook is defined. People are helping you go through that uh, and become strong in your first six to 12 months. I think that would be a great place to be because then the output that we will end up seeing will be much more higher quality than what it is today. Today, companies have capital, they've executed, but are they really coming out strong from that execution yeah, is my question. I agree. And to add to that, I would say the operator investor model uh, that we are seeing play out here in the US, I think will also be a very important, will play a very important role in um, you know what happens in the Indian VC sector in the next five years. And I'm very bullish on that. And I feel investors or also operators can leverage that current experience that they have, not just the past experience that they've had being an operator and really add value to businesses and entrepreneurs going forward. Now, what are the core economics of venture capital that all entrepreneurs need to understand in your opinion? Well, core economics is uh, the power law, right? It's at the end of the day, Every company should be potentially a, a very large outcome. Uh, but you know, even a $100 million fund at least needs one unicorn for it to you know, generate minimum return. So the, um, you know, the, the fact is that we can't predict it on day one but we want potentially every company to be looking like a billion dollar outcome, right? Because you, you, you don't know which one it will be finally. We are taking the, you know, the one in 20 type of rule here, but it, we don't know which one. So, because if that doesn't work and funds don't succeed, like I was saying earlier, that in the first 10 years, uh, entrepreneurs saw the check as the be all and end all, the valuation as sometimes, you know, the point of celebration. But, you know, VCs uh, were seen as an easy source of capital, not as what also needs to show exits and show value. 
uh, and actually returning some capital or most capital back to their investors. Startups need to understand that a thriving VC industry is what's going to you know, then result in a sustainable ecosystem. So long answer, but I think the going in uh, caveat is that we are expecting each company to fight and, and, and uh, shoot for a billion dollar outcome. And only then will this whole model work. Agreed. And my final question to you, if you could form a personal board for your, for your life, and you could choose from people in your personal life as well as professional life, who would you choose and why? A personal board for, for your uh, life. our fund? No, no, for your for life. My life. Okay. okay, just your life. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. Um, I never thought about that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so boards are usually uh, very helpful when they can open your eyes and point you in directions that you normally don't think about. So I would think along those lines, who are people that I would like to make part of my life to keep pointing me in directions which I would generally ignore. Um, so, um, you know, the author of The Black Swan, I think if I had him on my board, then I would always be aware of, um, you, know, the, you know, the probability of, um, how many times I can do confirmation biases being a VC. So, so that would be one. Uh, then I think uh, the uh, size and scope of uh, timing, uh, you know, Warren Buffett's been doing this on a very regular basis. So reminding that even VC is a bit like uh, Berkshire Hathaway because it has to consistently deliver return, not just one deal or one fund but over many, many years and many, many funds. So from a sustainability of uh, value creation, uh, you know, that we have to, let's say, go from no tech investments to tech investments and taking positions like Goldman Sachs at the right time. Those are, a, you know, a great reminder to be both opportunistic and also long-term. So yeah, I think I'll be pretty done with these two anyway. <laughs> One of them happens. I'll have a great board. This is fantastic. It's good to know that uh, you picked these two. And I'll probably come back to you in, in a few years time and ask you the same question again and see if you've met some really more interesting people in your life. But uh, this has been a wonderful episode, Rahul. Thank you so much for your generosity and insights. I've had so much fun talking to you both on Sunday as well as today. And we kind of like shooting this over two days, which has been fantastic. Uh, and I'm looking forward to sharing this with everybody. It's personal. One of my favorite episodes turned out to be so good. Thanks, Akash. I also really enjoyed uh, and look forward to seeing you in Bangalore at some point. We sure will, Rahul. I'm looking forward to my next Bangalore trip and sharing a dosa with you. And on that note, we come to the end of this week's episode. Rahul has given us so much to digest in an hour or so. There's a wealth of information about the Indian VC ecosystem from mid-2000s to where it is now. I have learned so much over the course of just this conversation. Thanks again, Rahul, for being on the show. It was a delight to have you. If you're like me and found this episode to be enriching, go ahead and rate the podcast. And while you're at it, do also subscribe to our podcast on your favorite podcasting platform so as to not miss out on our future releases. 
Before I leave you, I urge you all to check out the two startups we have featured today. First one is Qshala. Qshala is a curiosity platform consisting of live online courses designed to foster life skills and curiosity in children. And the second is Clergo. Clergo makes it effortless to start a discussion around a topic, eliminating the need for ad hoc and unplanned meetings to discuss something specific. More information about both these startups can be found in the episode notes section of the podcast. We're wrapping up this year with some wonderful guests, everybody. So make sure you tune back in next week to listen to them. Until then, stay safe, everyone, and continue to keep hustling.